Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm and waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 515. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is. Yes. <laughs> Oh man, have I got some apologising to do, man? Bloody hell, the potty mouth from me and the tears and the bawling and oh, man, <laughs> you know what it is? I was gonna kind of edit all that down and and nip it tight and but just put like and it was just actually going to be anger. To be quite honest, it's just a lot of goodness, your mother. And I thought it. it no, it wouldn't work like that, so I just kind of, I just said it how it was and put the put that rant in, and that there you go. Do you know what I mean? What does it take, man, to reduce like say a fifty-one-year-old guy to tears? Do you know what I mean? That's how bloody much. So it, I'm going to have to address it still on this show and just give you my thoughts and give you what's kind of happening and where we're going. Do you know what I mean? Because it, like I say, it wasn't just a bump in the road for, and it wasn't just. You know what I mean? That was the whole thing. If it had been just the District of Wonders Network with a little kind of whoop up on the road, it would. But it's everyone, man. That's the the thing that it's just it's just proved how kind of I, I guess Patreon's right in the veins of it all now. You know what I mean? So I'll tell you what's coming on today's show. Then I'm going to have to go back in and get back in and talk about where our future lies. Oh, so straight up, I should put that on silence, shouldn't I? Do you know what I, mean? I really should. <laughs> Texas here just to find out where the bloody thing is, man. That's why. Oh, I see. There's a wife that time. One second. I had actually back now, yes. It's just slippy roads, that's what the, the wife was saying. The weather's. I had minus 13 in some parts of England. Wow, man. The wife's just saying the roads are kind of atrocious, but she got the work okay. So I still haven't put that bloody phone on silent. So here, on, here we go. There, done it there now. So what was I talking about? Yes. <laughs> you know, this ain't professional at all. Eh? Hey, there's some slick shows out there, mind you, that too. A far better job, eh? <laughs> So, listen, I'll tell you what's coming in the day show, and then we'll kind of move on. First up, we've got the main fiction. It is How I Killed Your Mother by Evan Dicken, originally published in Cosmic Roots. Then we have our very own 
Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history for December. That is all coming to day show. So, I hope you do stick around and enjoy it. And like I say, we've got to kind of address this. Again, complete apologies for, you know, it just... You could see what was happening and this kind of was gaining momentum. This kind of people were kind of pulling out on Patreon and... I didn't realise, well, I guess I did realise just how kind of close we sailed to the wind. And again, it's probably like everywhere. Do you know what I mean? Every kind of podcast that's out there trying to kind of scrabble a living. You know, there's a few like us who kind of, you know, you pay the, the writers there now, you know, so you've got like over costs and all that nonsense. And it does, it kind of adds up to about, for Starships over, the District of Wonders, probably about 1200 1500 a month. You know what I mean? We're just all kind of costs and you've got to like things that it's like getting your roof fixed and you have to pay out a large sum for a bit of work on your roof and you you, you don't really kind of see it you know what I mean even just like and don't say you just do it yourself because I kind of just do it myself accounting fees are just like through the roof do you know what I mean just all sorts of fees just kind of come into it and it's just they're the kind of nature of the beast and that's everyone's got them all you know what I mean so I'm sort of grumbling about that but we do sail, you know, because we're just relying on on the generosity of all you good folks out there. So once it started to kind of, you know, you, you're at the kind of a beach June cliff, for one, for a better description, and the sand starts running away and you're kind of slipping down this this cliff, I'd, it just, you could see what was going to happen. I was thinking, man, because I think with me, I had nine go within, within a, about three hours, you know, and it was just like, oh, here we go. <laughs> What's going to happen here? So, And then you kind of realise it's just happening every, right across the board, you know what I mean? And like you say, bigger voices than mine kind of stood up and, you know, held them accountable and, you know, pulled them, actually pulled Patreon to bits, to be quite honest, and, you know, put them over the coals and, man, it's the last thing they wanted, I'm guessing. Do you know what I mean? Like I say, I truly got into kind of Jack Conti's message and it was that whole thing that's what you know there's still a few things piss me off oh god there goes the mouth again but it was that whole thing of like they sold their package they sold their kind of their resin detra you know a mantra where you could take your little ten dollars a month and spread bet it right across all your favorite ones and that was the whole thing and then that's the that's the crucial the crucial one that's kind of hit everybody, you know what I mean? Because it is making that $10 go up now to kind of whatever it is, you know, and do the maths to and quick on, online, live. <laughs> you know what I mean? 10, 10, 50, 10, what, 15 quid probably, you know, something like that. And that's what's annoying. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's the little ones. And that's what kind of powers the, the whole Patreon. Do you know what I mean? And they've hit them ones. You know, it's just it's bizarre. And... What's annoying is, I think, as well, what getting a lot of people kind of wound up by it was you sign up, you know, use as a Patreon, come over and you sign up, and it says, you know, $1. You click that $1. So Patreon, go in to your bank and take that $1, which you've agreed to, you know what I mean? But then they also go in without telling you and take this other 36 pence. Do you know what I mean? Dollar, cent, what you know what I mean? That's the thing that's whining, you know what I mean? 
and it's coming out in anger sometimes, you know what I mean? And you're kind of, I'm getting messages constantly, do you know what I mean? So, but we kind of, you know, we took stock and it's just been fantastic. People kind of, the support and the pledges that are coming in. And basically, it's it's like a movement, you know what I mean? You have kind of just in your own self, decided which is the best way to go. Do you know what I mean? I just kind of stood back and just started to tremble. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the fight, the charge, the battle of the bastards. You know what I mean? That kind of, I just was at the front line going, what, what am I going to do? And it was the whole network just said, let's just stick with Patreon and let's, you know, let we take it on the chin tone do you know what I mean let's just let's it's not it's not the the best of of kind of way to go on but they took it on the chin and everyone you know what I mean almost everyone that kind of support us anyways have kind of upped the pledge do you know what I mean and with new pledges is coming on so that's you know in a kind of nutshell we're gonna stick with Patreon you know what I mean they are on, you know, and you know, think of it kind of like a voice of say Snatch, you know what I mean? That the film Snatch, they are in very thin ice, my pedigree charm. <laughs> That's Bricktop, by the way. If anyone does, you know what I mean? That what a great film. So, you know, and like I say, there's, there's loads out there kind of doing it. And I think for me as well, it was so upsetting because it was like, you know, like I've preached on about Patreon being like an ideal kind of platform. And it's like, you know what I mean? Taking your, you know, you've talked about your best friend forever and you're taking to this party and then your best friend turns around in front of everybody and punches you right in the face. And everyone just stops silent and looks, you know, and it's that awkward. It's that's how I felt. Do you know what I mean? And kind of, typically, you know, what you should do is stand up to them and, you know, and but what I did was just... <laughs> Hold me cheek and start to cry and run out, <laughs> run out of the party. <laughs> but that's it, you know what I mean? And kind of, I think that's for everyone's the the most upsetting thing. Do you know what I mean? It just, it was it just handled so badly by the man. Do you know what I mean? And the amount of emails I'm getting, like copied in, and showing what the people have wrote to Perion. Do you know what I mean? There must be. Man, it must be the worst possible time for Perion. They've got to make some big decisions. If they're just kind of trying to duck under the, you know what I mean, come out and just talk to people. God, it's so, like, obvious what to do. Do you know what I mean? Hold your hands up, man. Just apologise, you know what I mean? Go with it. Work to, to the... <laughs> To the strange thing is, though, they'll be making way loads this December. Because, like, if everybody's like what, you know, the District of Wonders has been like, I've had new people coming on, you know what I mean? So, out of every crisis, should we say. So, th- th- that's it. Now, I've had, again, it's it's been people, you know, like, and that's me whole time's been taken up with this as well, which is just... You kind of just want to kind of listen to stories and and write them, you know what I mean? And not write them, for God's sake, me. <laughs> the cat's had on the mat. Just answering people, you know, which way. So we have two ways. We have the Patreon way and we have the PayPal way. And that's the way we're going to kind of stick. If anyone just, it does rile up, you know, using Patreon, please, on the website there, we've got the 
the the PayPal. You know, we've always had that. You kind of just pick your monthly donation, and it doesn't in, incur costs, and it comes directly to me. I mean, it all comes directly to me. Going the Patreon way, listen, I'm still behind it. I was going to say 100% behind it, you know what I mean? I am. It's it's the way we've we've got so much kind of planned. It's so much like kind of embedded in we're now, you know what I mean? We're launching on the 1st of January with a serial format. Not this week. I think it's not next week, the week after. We're going to play like a show on there so you can get a feel of it, you know, so... We've got the Red Dwarfs on there. I'm going to, about, I don't know, about two years ago, I was doing like a lot of interviews. Now, I want to pick that up again, but I don't want to kind of mess up this show, you know, so I'm I'm going to put the interviews on there, you know, just those kind of future interviews, you know, like people are kind of dealing in the futures of, of life on earth and, and things like that, just things that grab me eye. I might, oh, have a chat with them because I miss that, you know what I mean? It's just fascinating listening to people like that. So they'll go on. And like I say, Perion for me is an ideal thing where I can just bang out stuff, you know what I mean? So that's the way we're going to go. Here's the thing that kind of, out of all this kind of nonsense, that's kind of made us realise, you know, again, quoting that Snatch film, we are on thin ice, my pedigree chum. Do you know what I mean? It is, a honestly, this is a plea. Stop now. And have a think about it. Do you know what I mean? We're go- we're doing this and we want to kind of keep going. Do you know what I mean? Someone threw a stone on the ice pond and we nearly all went in. Do you know what I mean? And it doesn't take much. Do you know what I mean? And again, this is for a call for all the podcasts out there. Do you know what I mean? I'm just going to shout for our genre because science fiction and the horror and everything. That's what I kind of dig out. So support. Do you know what I mean? Man, everyone who will need it. Do you know what I mean? Doesn't matter if they're huge, massive ones or if they're tiny little ones. We are fucked if it goes wrong. Do you know what I mean? And we do this for the love, man. Do you know what I mean? It's just like you say, we're going to play Evan's story. What a story, man. It's It gets you, man. It gets... the. It's hope. You know what I mean? I interviewed Jack Vance and... It wasn't actually Jack Vance, it was Gene Wolfe. Hey, look at that, but I'm fucking throwing names around like some not, right? It was Gene Wolfe, and I asked him, what does science fiction mean to you? And it was hope. And that's, you know what I mean? When you're stuck with such a, some life, horrible thing is going on in your life, we give you hope. And that is worth fucking $5, surely to God. Do you know what I mean? You might be fine, and you might be going through life, and you know what I mean? You take this show and you listen and you come back and you listen. Listen, man, get your hand in your pocket and support her. Do you know what I mean? I've got Jeremy there. The amount of hours that guy and Ralph is putting in to kind of going through, and we've got slush readers now, putting in. He doesn't have to do it. He does it because he loves this. You know what I mean? He just loves getting a story and bringing it to you that he thinks, hey, you like this. Do you know what I mean? Put your hands in your pockets and come over to Patreon or PayPal and support her. Go to Escape Pod. There's the site, there's, there's on their website there, there's links there for PayPal, for Patreon. You know, yes, they had a, a, a nice big Kickstarter. That money's gone, man. That money's gone straight away. They even paying the Raiders. Go there, support them. Get over to Clark's World. That lad is, you know what I mean? It, this one kind of, it's starting to go, oh, the tears are going. That lad there has had like, Shit thrown at him personally. You know, he's 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 now doing this Clark's world on his own, 
just supported by Patreon. Do you know what I mean? The lad had a heart attack. He's got to pay for fees out of all this. You know what I mean? This is his job. Now, go over there and support. Even if you don't support me, go over to Clark's World and look after them. Do you know what I mean? That's... This is where it's at. This is, if you like short fiction, if you like the genre, just support women. man. It has to be done. Do you know what I mean? I know you, I'm going on and on and on, but and I couldn't get up here and talk like this in front of an audience. Do you know what I mean? That's just not going to happen for me. <laughs> just kind of, just, I'll just be at the back there. But when I've just got this mic and it's just me in the living room and the dogs and the dogs are snoring, I can kind of see what I feel. And... You have to do it if you want to keep it going. Do you know what I mean? It is as simple as that. We will go, and that's it. Do you know what I mean? And there's not that many of it. Yeah, some new ones have come, but you'll not get the kind of the community. You'll get the big fancy flash ones that are getting, you know, all the production values, but there's no warmth there. Do you know what I mean? It's just done by corporate. This is done, and like you say, a skier pod. Clark's World, Lightspeed, they're just done in your living room, man. Do you know what I mean? We get the stories, we're getting them stories that are kind of so crucial and so fantastic. And we just, you know, it's all kind of homemade and keep it going. For God's sake, man, I would be fucked. Do you know what I mean? There, finding a bit thicker ice there now. I'm getting a bit cocky with myself. Look at I'm doing a few flips and spins. So... There we go. By God, get over to Perion and support we support everybody. Do you know what I mean? Not just District of Wonders. Support a lot of women because it's a bad time for everyone. You know what I mean? It just kind of proves how fickle we can be. Do you know what I mean? Boy. So, there we go. That was the last little one there. Evan Dickin. <laughs> Should we get this, get in this show? I don't know how long I've waffled on here for. Right, main fiction, How I Killed Your Mother by Evan Dickin. Originally published in Cosmic Roots. By dear, Evan Dickin studies old Japanese maps and analyzes medical research data in Ohio State University. Man, what a job! By night, he does neither of those things. His work has most recently appeared in Escape Pod, Pseudopod and The Overcast and his stories forthcoming from publishers such as Chasm, I think is it? Unlikely Story and Cast of Wonders. Feel free to visit him at evandickin.com. This story is narrated by Tad Carlin. Tad Carlin is the associate editor at Pseudopod and the wiki wrangler for Escape Artists. Oh, I didn't even, even run it on there. I didn't even know that. He has many adventures over the years, serving as a linguistist in the US Air Force, failing at the truck driving. <laughs> I just did you just shut the door on the truck tan and just walk away and that I'm never getting in one of them things again. Never. Nah, not in a dear's life. <laughs> he has published most of his stories in his 2016 Did you see how I put this in the kind of voice on? Tad <laughs> hasn't got a voice like that. Why that's not sound like that? Sorry, Tad. Listen, I'll buy you a pint. Sorry about that, lad. He's published most of his stories in his 2016 memorial memoir, sorry, novel, Tad's Happy Fun Time. His current projects include finishing his family history, drafting a sci-fi novel, and completing his long dormant music degree. Tad, this is fantastic. What a great voice as well. And it, there you go. Proves everyone's affected. You know, Evan's affected. There's nowhere to kind of send these stories. 
Oh, it's drastically reduced. And Tad, you know what I mean, helps out with a skateboarders. You've got to support her. So, what do I say now? I forgot. <laughs> the Starship Sova is very proud to present How I Killed Your Mother by Evan Dickin. They say you never forget the first time you die. Mine might have been when the Mars domes exploded. I remember spinning above the rusty landscape, carried like a moat of pollen on winds of fire. Sometimes I dream about the parody riots, the siege of Wall Street, of storming McMansions with the other 99ers, <laughs> but there's no way I'm that old. I think it's just because I really like that tritio. You know, the one with the guy who played Comrade Kim in All Hail Glorious Leader? I can't remember his name. Damn, that's going to bother me all day. It could have been cancer. The Big C got me a couple of times back before we pinned down the transcription algorithms. I got sucked into space once or twice, and there was that time I drowned. Okay, so I can't remember the first time I bit it, but I'll never forget the first time your mom killed me. Even now, if I close my eyes, I see it as clear as a Martian sunrise. It was during the first Red Surge. I was a commissar with the 211th Steel Reserve. We'd been fighting through the Tharsis, and the syndics were making us pay for every ridge. Most of the division was pushing for Olympus Mons, but my battalion had stumbled across a whole swarm of manticores in an area Intel assured us was empty. First thing I heard was that damn hissing. Then the air was full of metal. Colonel Okoye spammed the command override as he fell, so we all got an earful. I'm not complaining. I know a lot of soldiers had it worse, but you try to restore order over the sound of your commanding officer being eviscerated by sentient razor blades. Thankfully, we'd hooked up with the remnants of an armored company a few hours before, and the tanks made short work of the bots. Soon as we hit the manticores, I knew we were onto something. The syndics didn't waste smart minds on empty canyons. Sure enough, I spied plasteel poking from under a scabby overhang. Even if Intel had done a low flyover, they would have never seen the bunker. Hell, if we hadn't blundered into the canyon, I think it would probably still be there today. No one wanted to charge the crossfire. I know it sounds strange, but good bodies were worth a lot back then. Get popped, and you could go months, maybe even years, before HQ fished you out of the wikifont. And don't even get me started on mistranslation. I had some buddies come back bleeding other people's memories or stuck reliving the moment of their death. Still gives me shivers some nights. My comrades were probably thinking the same thing, so I promised I'd put in a good word for anyone who followed me into the breach, and a flechette in the head of anyone who didn't. That got them moving. A lot of people think Mars is covered in sand, coarse, grainy stuff like on the beaches back on Earth. The reality is more like dust. Imagine charging into a hail of railgun spikes through knee-deep drifts of talcum powder. Most of us went down in the first few seconds, but apart from a slashed rebreather hose and a twisted ankle, I came through in one piece. A breaching charge made short work of the airlock, and we went boiling in, all hopped up on borrowed adrenaline and thoughts of the biotokens we'd earned for taking a syndic command post. There were about a score of node rats inside, a few still hooked up to their consoles, the rest cycling up the minigun they had pointed our way. That's when I saw her. 
It's cliché to say everything stood still, or that it was like we were the only two people in the room, but that's how I remember it. She wasn't much to look at, just another node rat with a head full of jack scars and eyes hard as shell casings. The syndics were cloning a lot of women's bodies back then. Not as strong, but cheaper to grow, and hell on jets in a firefight. Although her combat unitar didn't leave much to the imagination, there really wasn't much to imagine. No, it, it wasn't like that. I've been with plenty of women. Hell, I've been plenty of women. There was just this feeling. I, I can't really describe it. Like when you've had something on the tip of your tongue for hours and your brain just sort of clicks. Gordon Wong, that's his name. You know, Comrade Kim from All Hail Glorious Leader. I wonder whatever happened to him. Anyway, I was still staring when the minigum burst tore my leg off. Although there was blood all over my faceplate, my suit sutured the wound, so I don't think too much of it was mine. I could see blurry shapes through the crystallized gore, my squad folding like wet paper. A blast of oxygen from my suit's reserves brought me back. I pawed for my omni-rifle, but another spray of gunfire stippled my chest with burning coals. My memory gets kind of hazy after that. I don't remember how long I lay there, but I do remember your mom stooping to wipe the burgundy frost from my faceplate. Her eyes were liquid behind the clear glass of her visor, and I could see the maroon slash on her arm where an errant shot had sliced the weave of her unitard. I remember smelling fresh laundry, although I might have been hallucinating. I had lost a lot of blood. I reached for her hand, and she slipped my throat. Seriously, who stabs anyone anymore? She could have just sprayed me with shrapnel until I stopped twitching, but she took the time to do it personal, face to face. I wasn't able to get back to the canyon until after the Battle of Noctis. By then, the whole place had been scoured by orbital bombardments, and what remained of the node rats was spread across a few hectares of cratered rock. I found a helmet in the blackened ruins, a few strands of bloody hair frozen to the inside. I like to think it was hers. I chipped some of the blood into a collection tube and wore the damn thing around my neck until I got incinerated in the Mons Offensive. It took me a decade to get her name. I was on the Oprah Maru, a damn fine slipship. Everyone got along well, and the crew worshipped Captain Gale like she was the third coming. We were hunting syndic listening posts in the Kuiper Belt. Not the most glamorous work, but necessary. They called me first officer, but my actual job was to sit in an uncomfortable chair and listen for patterns in the garble of background radiation. I'd caught a few flickers of chatter as we wandered between plutinos and planetesimals, mostly tight-beam stuff, drips and drabs, nothing we could really sink our teeth into. Captain Gale was getting antsy. She said it was because she wanted us to be the ones to root out the last syndics in the system, but I think she was still pissed the Oprah hadn't made it to Neptune in time for the big show. It wasn't just the captain. I'd be lying if I said any of us were looking forward to the long walk of shame back to Earth. There really wasn't anything special about Makimaki, just another dwarf planet frosted with candy swirls of methane and nitrogen. If anything, it was less active than the other rocks we'd scanned. As soon as I saw it, though, I knew. I just knew. I'd cobbled together a syndic transponder from parts we'd fished from the debris field around Neptune. And when the readings came back cold and dead, I figured it wouldn't hurt to ping the rock just to see if anyone was awake. Even so, I wasn't expecting an answer. 
It wasn't the carefully planned operation the history downloads describe. We really just tripped over them. Near as I can figure, Makimaki was a rally point for the Syndic fleet. Other Neptune survivors must have been slipping in for months, and the Kuiper Belt was big enough for the Syndics to be pretty sure nobody was going to creep up unannounced. There were enough ships hidden in Makimaki's gravity well to vaporize the Opera before we could spool up a tight beam. Even if we could have gotten a message off, the closest support vessels would have arrived just in time to scrape us off the nearest asteroid. By all rights, we should have been scrapped the moment we slipped in, but the Syndics didn't fire. My best guess is the Oprah was old enough her silhouette matched the early Syndic cruisers, and since we were running a friendly transponder, they must have assumed we were one of theirs. Still, we almost pissed ourselves when the first hail came crackling through. Captain Gale rolled with it. A minute of scrambling after that first ping, and we'd mocked up the bridge and crew into a good facsimile of a Syndic command deck. Gale bluffed her way past a few comms officers while we sweated through our unitards. I was just beginning to think the captain might have pulled it off when she came on the screen. This is Acting Fleet Commander Alva. Your passcodes are out of date. She was older than the last time we'd met, and she'd let her hair grow out. I couldn't believe she'd survived Mars. It could have been a copy, I suppose. The Syndics had a pretty good handle on cloning, even back then, and a sense of self-image that bordered on obsession. The Republic wasn't that picky. When the Wikifont spat out a soul, HQ just mapped it onto the first viable shell. A body was a body, and it was still cheaper and easier to grow them in mass creches than the old-fashioned way. Looking back on it, I suppose the Syndics must have been pretty hard up for biomass to let one of their officers age like that, but at the time I can only remember thinking the silver streaks in her hair looked like shooting stars on a moonless night. That, and how much I wanted to blow her out of the sky. Captain Gale tried to spin some line of bull about how our mainframe got derezzed in the Battle of Neptune, but your mom wasn't buying. In fact, she was staring right at me the whole time. Alva couldn't have recognized me. I was younger and smaller than before. My hair was still close-cropped but auburn instead of black, and more importantly, I was a woman. Still, something in the wry twist of her lips told me I'd just been made. I lunged for the fire station. There was a moment, nestled like a pressed flower in the milliseconds between Alva's smile and the Syndic macro batteries opening fire, when I swear she winked at me. I woke up gagging on amniotic fluid. After I wrestled my way out of the mass crash, they told me I'd managed to get off a burst to Fleet HQ before the lasers vivisected the Oprah. Honestly, I'm pretty sure I didn't do it, but I let them pin a medal on me anyway. Captain Gale got mistranslated. HQ plugged her into a top-of-the-line body, but all she did was laugh. Not giggles, but these deep, grand mall belly laughs that just rattled her apart. I suppose there are worse ways to go, but not many. To this day, I can't even hear a chuckle without wanting to grit my teeth. It wasn't all bad. As first officer, I inherited command of the recommissioned Oprah. I had rank, respect, and more bio-tokens than I could spend. Even better, I had her name. You'd be surprised how many Alvas there are. The one thing the Syndics loved more than unapologetic capitalists were brute force inventors. Edison was a sort of saint to them. I suppose that's why they always had the technological edge. 
My new rank gave me just enough clearance to get names and designations, but not much else. Besides, I was pretty busy commanding a ship. We may have broken the syndics back at Neptune, but they weren't going down easy. I didn't run across Alva in the slow bleed of years after Makemake, but I knew she was out there. I didn't like space combat. I would get this sinking feeling whenever I scourged a factory moon or lanced an escape pod, like I'd lost a tooth or something. I wanted her to know it was me who did it, you know, personal, face to face. Worse than that, I couldn't stand the idea she might be killed by someone else. If we'd been fighting anything more than blockade runners and repurposed merchant marines, I probably wouldn't have gotten everyone under my command slaughtered a few times over. As it was, I barely even noticed the Shanghai bombings. Internal security must have been watching me for years. I'd been sniffing around files far above my clearance level. I'm surprised they didn't just erase my Wikifont entry. Maybe something in my service record raised an eyebrow or two, or maybe some process clerk misfiled the termination order. It happens more often than people think. Anyway, one second, I'm on a three-day pass. The next, I'm in an underground bunker, having my memory squeezed through a sieve. I suppose whatever they found convinced them I wasn't a syndicate spy. I think they were planning to wipe me anyway, but instead, they ended up offering me a job. Guess they liked my initiative. My body was in pretty bad shape when they finished with the questions, so they gave me a better one. I'll say one thing about Insect, they never stinted on quality. I could bench-press a small car, run for days, even breathe underwater. I never really got a chance to use that last one, but it was still nice to know I could. Better yet, I had my own biotank. No more swimming through asses and elbows in the mass crash. I popped out ready to rumble and landed neck-deep in shit. The Battle of Neptune had shattered the syndics into a storm of nasty resistance cells. We couldn't even pin them down long enough to take a swing, let alone land a solid punch. It was the war they should have been fighting all along. Shanghai taught them that. I remember once, the syndics repurposed a whole mass crash to screw with the brain chemistry of the bodies it created. Damn thing churned out a half million serial killers before we figured out we'd been hacked. Although I had levels of clearance I didn't even know existed, I barely had time to blink, let alone run unauthorized data scans. I caught glimpses of Alva here and there, usually just before she zipped my head off with a monofilament garrote. I must have gone through a dozen iterations. It was almost as bad as the Red Push. Almost. I've always translated well, so while other agents came back chewing on their fingers or talking backwards, I slowly worked my way up the ranks. I ended up with my own team, then my own division. It was nice to be out of the line of fire, and even nicer to have no one looking over my shoulder. I found passenger manifests showing an Alvaretta Lynn had fled to Mars in the wake of the parody riots, which meant she'd grown up on Earth, Old Earth. The first diaspora was mostly tycoons and trust fund kids, but Alva didn't strike me as one of those. Probably a researcher or an engineer like me, Mars wasn't going to terraform itself. A corrupted registration file confirmed my suspicions. She was listed as a resident of Helium Dome. Maybe we had even passed each other in the halls. A report came across my desk that the syndics were planning to spike a shipment of biomass headed for Kepler. Normally this wouldn't have involved insect, but there was this outbreak of food poisoning at the Kepler port commander's daughter's quinceañera that had your mom's fingerprints all over it. 
I spooled up some doctored report about how Kepler was rife with insurgents. It wasn't an outright lie. We'd just lost a double fistful of the outer colonies to syndic-backed rebellions, and I knew there had to be some enemy agents on Kepler. To throw fleet command off the scent, I spread rumors the syndics were building warships on one of the moons of Gleese 278. HQ is about to rubber stamp the whole thing when this Admiral... What was his name? Oh, yeah, Wong, came barging into the council chamber and started ranting about how I was undermining everything the Republic stood for. It was a damn good speech, really brought a tear to my eye. Later, under interrogation, Wong admitted he'd cribbed most of it from old films, but his delivery was so good I ended up offering him a job in propaganda. Really, I did him a favor. He was a natural actor, totally wasted in fleet command. The Kepler operation was a thing of beauty. Public officials thoroughly bribed, sleeper agents seated among suspected syndic sympathizers, rapid response teams staged in suborbital drop pods. A thing of beauty. If any of Alva's agents so much as sneezed within ten light years of Kepler, I heard about it. Everything was perfect, except she never showed. The delivery went off without a hitch. Much-needed biomass gifted to the grateful citizens of Kepler by a stern yet loving republic. Somehow, I got all the credit. There was even going to be a parade, but I canceled it. Too much of a security risk. I convened a public inquiry to shake out any information leaks among Insect Command. I may have even found a few real traitors, but I don't remember. What's important is I got a big promotion, and that the focus was off me and on to Alva. When I revealed she wasn't just a syndic, but quite possibly one of the syndics, still alive and plotting a return to wage slavery, HQ granted me emergency powers. I was so wrapped up in politicking, I missed the bomb. When I popped out of the tank, mad as hell, they told me I'd been killed by a shape charge in one of my desk drawers. I could have launched another inquiry, I suppose, but that's what landed me back in the tank in the first place. While I'd been wrapping myself in red tape, Alva had sidled up and tagged me again. It wasn't totally my fault. HQ was mostly populated by heroes of a moth-eaten rebellion, sipping their iterations like fine wine long ago run to vinegar. I'd never find Alva with their meaningless quibbles, their nattering questions about rights and civil liberties. The Republic needed focus. Rome had its Caesar, China its Huang Yi, America, it's Kim Jong-un. It was time for me to stop pissing around on the sidelines. There was no point in killing anyone. They'd just be back, after all. So it took me a lot longer than I'd planned. Still, I've never been one to let the size of a job get me down. I just kept my eye on the prize and didn't stop until they proclaimed me glorious leader. That was about the time the Syndic fleet slipped past Neptune. Turns out I'd been right about the secret dockyards on Gleese 278. For once, Intel gave me everything I could want. Fleet movements, weapon complements, which syndic officers didn't wash their hands after using the bathroom. Unfortunately, my commanders were too busy watching each other for signs of disloyalty to fight the invasion. When the syndics landed troops on Mars, I watched the reports from my bunker under Olympus Mons, feeling like I had something stuck between my teeth. Your mother was in a lot of the tritios, charging into gunfire, raising syndic flags over crashes and biomass farms, and liberating, yes, liberating, my cities. I know it's all fun and games now, but back then, war was serious business. I studied the reports for weeks, months. 
I'd keel over from exhaustion, then pop right back out and keep working. Slowly, patterns began to form in the marches and battles, irregular pieces slipping into the shape of things to come. Alva was marching on Mons. She would crack my bunker with artillery, or send waves of executive guards to overwhelm my defenses, or maybe she wouldn't even bother. A few orbital strikes in the mountain would do the work. She could kill me without slitting my throat, without even lifting a finger, except I knew she wouldn't. Just like that, everything clicked. I walked into the Tharsis alone, naked but for a knife and my old combat unitard. Your mother didn't make me wait long. Alva came boiling out of the dust like a tarnished devil, rivulets of verdigris trailing from her hair. Her first stab caught me in the shoulder. I remember because I've always kept the scar. I think I cut her arm. Ryder laughed. You'll have to ask her. I'd like to say it was climactic, my life's work culminating in an act of perfect murder. But you see, it wasn't like that at all. As I worked my blade into Alva's guts, felt hers scrape across my ribs, I realized this was it. If I walked away, I would do it alone. I always thought I'd made it through so many iterations because I was easy to translate, but the fact of the matter is, you've really got to want to come back more than anything. Dying wears holes in you. It was the striving that had kept me going, not the goal. Promise me you'll never tell your mom I fumbled the knife on purpose. I remember staring up at her silhouetted against the Martian sky, her lips bright with blood, every line of her face etched in dusty filigree, and thinking I'd rather be here, dying at her feet, than anywhere else in the galaxy. She looked around, then tossed her knife away, blinking like she had something in her eyes. You remembered. They weren't the first words I'd ever heard her say, but they were the first she'd ever said to me. That was when I realized just where in the hell we were. The canyon hadn't changed much. Sure, the talc was mostly gone, and the ground was covered by a fine layer of aerobic moss, but I could pick out the explosion scars, the canted rock Colonel Okoye had painted with blood, and the low lichen-covered mound that marked where my men had fallen, where I'd fallen. She swayed, then collapsed with a puff of dust. I propped myself up on Okoye's rock and reached for her, there was a time when I would have gritted my teeth and tried to hang on until she died of blood loss, but it just didn't seem so important anymore. It took a while for her fingers to find mine. We lay there, hand in hand, watching the sun slip behind Olympus Mons. I swear I smelled fresh laundry on the breeze, but I may have been hallucinating. I had lost a lot of blood, after all. There you go. Evan, sir! Man. Fantastic. Evan, thank you so much. And Tad, what can I say? Give you a big bear hugs, Tad. Thank you so much. Just an amazing voice, lovely. And like you say, the work you're doing over at Pseudopod. Again, just in that bed. You know what I mean? Just for your own kind of happiness. Thank you so much. So, Amy. <laughs> you know, Amy does all this work. I'm not even going to go there because you're not even wanting us to say anything anyways. Amy H. Sturgis. Ames. What you got, lass? Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. And if I am counting correctly, that's always a big if with me. There's a reason I'm not a math professor. This is my 99th looking back on genre history segment. 
99th. That means that 2018 will see me in the three figures. Ah, time flies when you're having fun. So thank you, Tony, for keeping me around, and thank you, all of my fellow sofa knots, for listening. What I'd like to do today is pick up a bit where I left off in my last segment. You may recall in my last segment I was talking about how the 1956 ballot for the Hugo Awards had recently been rediscovered, and we learned, thanks to that rediscovery, that among other important firsts, Lee Brackett's *The Long Tomorrow* became the first novel by a woman. Nominated for the best novel category for the Hugo Award, and I mentioned that I wanted to talk a bit more about Lee Brackett in the future. And hey, now the future is today. I'd like to talk about Lee Brackett. Lee Brackett was a U.S. author and scriptwriter. She lived from 1915 to 1978. And in the genre, she was responsible for over fifty. Science fiction and fantasy short stories and ten novels, and was most active from the 1940s through the 1970s. Her very first published science fiction story was *Martian Quest*, which appeared in the February 1940 issue of *Astounding Science Fiction*. Many of her stories appeared in publications like *Planet Stories* or *Thrilling Wonder Stories*. The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction describes her specialty as quote, "swashbuckling but literate planetary romances." End quote. What exactly does this mean? Her works had plenty of exploration and adventure, but they also included social themes. For example, inspecting and critiquing and unpacking the notion of colonialism. Many of her stories took place in the same shared universe. Some people call that the Lee Brackett solar system, that included a highly imaginative and detailed depiction of Mars as an inhospitable desert world, and also Venus, which she characterized in an opposite kind of way as a wet jungle planet. There was also a sometimes recurring antihero called Eric John Stark. You could see in her focus on this kind of planetary romance an influence of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Think John Carter of Mars, for example. But in another way, Brackett was kind of subverting the tropes of that kind of space opera narrative. Lee Brackett's Mars is a lot different than Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars, and so are her protagonists. Of her recurring character Stark, the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction says this: quote, "Stark concentrates all the virtues of the sword and sorcery hero in his lean figure, rather like Robert E. Howard's Conan, though Stark, an orphan of advanced civilization raised by aboriginals of Mercury." Is considerably more complex than his mentor. End quote. 
Her worlds aren't just sitting there, sort of in a vacuum, waiting for the white male protagonist to come whip things into shape, right? They exist in a context of interplanetary commerce and competition. Not all of the civilizations are in the same place in terms of their own development and evolution. And she considers how colonialism impacts these different civilizations differently because she is critical and thoughtful in her illustrations. Her works hold up better than and are more relevant than uh, a lot of her contemporaries. Brackett's perspective could be quite bleak as well. Take, for example, The Long Tomorrow, the book that was nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Novel, 1955. It's a dark look at the United States in what is essentially a, a dark ages in the aftermath of a nuclear apocalypse. The young protagonist, Lynn, flees the suffocating anti-intellectualism of his new Mennonite home. He also fights against the constitutional restrictions that forbid the reestablishment of cities. Finally, he reaches his goal, which is the secretive barter's town. That's where science is supposedly unfettered, but its reality doesn't quite fit its legend. Clearly, though, the idea of avoiding another nuclear apocalypse by forbidding knowledge, forbidding education, forbidding technology, forbidding groups of people from choosing to live together in large communities... It's a chilling, chilling story. It sort of illustrates the throwing the baby out with the bathwater idea, intellectually speaking. One particularly excellent example of her ability to use speculative fiction as social commentary came in the short story All the Colors of the Rainbow, which was published in the November 1957 issue of Venture Science Fiction. In this story... An alien woman, part of a galactic center team that's engaged in a weather control exercise on Earth, ends up among the white racists of a U.S. southern town. And she is raped because they think of her as they think of black humans, even though she is not human at all. And so she is subject to the same horrific treatment that a black woman would receive in that southern town. It's a disturbing and powerful story. In 1946, Lee Brackett married fellow science fiction author Edmund Hamilton, and they remained married until his death in 1977. They did not collaborate. They each wrote independently. But it's been noted that Edmund Hamilton's work became more sophisticated after his relationship uh, began with Lee Brackett. Some have implied that she upped his game, as it were. He edited a collection of her stories, which came out in 1977, the year he died. And according to the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, that collection, The Best of Lee Brackett, quote, confirms the muscular panache of her work, end quote. Incidentally, she returned the favor and edited The Best of Edmund Hamilton, which also came out in 1977. 
Now, one of the things that I find most interesting about Lee Brackett is the fact that she had talents outside of science fiction as well. She really broke the mold, in a way, for a female writer of her time. What do I mean by that? Her first novel was called No Good from a Corpse. It was published in 1944, and it was a hard-boiled mystery novel, kind of in the tradition of, say, Raymond Chandler. It so impressed producer-slash-director Howard Hawks that he said he wanted to get that guy bracket, thinking that she was male. But it didn't matter to him. He didn't bat an eye when he found out that he was actually a she. And he hired her to help his other script writer adapt Raymond Chandler's 1939 novel, The Big Sleep, featuring the private detective Philip Marlowe, for film. This is a huge deal for several reasons. First of all, the reputation of Raymond Chandler and his noir detective stories. Secondly, the other script writer was none other than William Faulkner. So Lee Brackett was hired to help William Faulkner, and she, in fact, did very, very well. This became the film The Big Sleep, in which Humphrey Bogart played Philip Marlowe and Lauren McCall played Vivian Rutledge. It became one of the iconic Hawks films. Another fun tidbit, in order to do this, in order to help adapt The Big Sleep, Brackett had to abandon a novella that she had been writing for Planet Stories that was coming out in serial fashion, Lorelei of the Red Mist. And so another author stepped in to finish it for her, and that author was Ray Bradbury. Hawks liked Brackett's work so much, he kept hiring her. So she wrote, for example, the screenplay for Rio Bravo, the 1959 Western starring John Wayne, Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, Angie Dickinson, and Walter Brennan. She would go on to be scriptwriter or co-scriptwriter for several other films, Gold of the Seven Saints in 1961, Hatari 1962, Man's Favorite Sport, uncredited in that case, in 64, El Dorado, 67, Rio Lobo, 70, The Long Goodbye in 73. And this brings me to the final and perhaps most controversial point of her career. Controversial in that there are still debates as to how much of Lee Brackett we see in the final product. What am I talking about? After the success of Star Wars, George Lucas found himself hoping for help in writing the script for The Empire Strikes Back. And so he turned to Lee Brackett. He provided her with a story outline and then turned her loose to write a script, which she did. Now, how much of her script ended up in The Empire Strikes Back, this is the issue of some debate, because we know that a finished draft was delivered to Lucas, and shortly thereafter, Brackett died from cancer on March 18, 1978. There were other versions of the screenplay written by Lucas and eventually Lawrence Kasdan, and Brackett and Kasdan were given credit for the final script. And, of course, the film won the 1981 Hugo Award. 
Were things changed from Brackett's version of the script? Absolutely. And part of that is because of the story treatment that Lucas gave to her in the first place. When Lucas outlined a story uh, for her then to adapt to screenplay, he hadn't even decided at that point that Darth Vader was, in fact, Anakin Skywalker. So, yes, of course, there were changes made, but perhaps not as many as some people think. For example, Charlie Jane Anders has written that while it's fashionable to disparage Brackett's contributions to Empire, it's not true that none of Brackett's storyline winds up in the final movie. The basic story beats are the same. John Savindra of Den of Geek writes, Most importantly, you see that Brackett's draft, while definitely in need of a rewrite and several tweaks, holds all of the big moments we'd eventually see on screen. We still get a version of the Battle of Hoth, the wise words of an old Jedi Master, the excitement of zooming through a deadly asteroid field, a love triangle, a majestic city in the clouds, unexpected betrayals, and the climactic duel between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader that we would reenact on playgrounds for years to come. End quote. I think the big question, the big what if, is how much of a role she would have played in the rewrites, in the final drafts of the script, had she survived. At any rate, what we see here is a career that included short stories, novels, and screenplays, a pioneering career that spanned decades. Lee Brackett was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, in 2014. I hope you will take a look at some of her novels or any of the many collections of her shorter fiction, both Mars-related and non-Mars-related. Lee Brackett still has much to say to us. And with that, I want to thank you for your time and attention. I look forward to joining you again very soon for another look back into genre history. Happy holidays to you and happy new year. And there you go. Amy, Merry, Merry Christmas. I beat Amy to the Christmas card. Um, she sends me one and it's just a fantastic one. It's a Star Wars one. But I cheated actually. I sent like a, a video email, Merry Christmas card, but I beat her. And actually, <laughs> I only beat her, but I thought I was early. But by God, she got her Christmas bloody Christmas card list out. And I beat her by one day. And this was like sometime, I'm sure it was in November, Ames. So, anyways, a Merry Christmas, Amy. Love you loads, lass. Massive. Big hug. So that is Starship Sova. Show 5.15, put to bed. Again, sorry for the ramble and the potty words with the rant and the, and the tears and the whole kind of thing. It's just important things this to us, you know what I mean? It's important to everybody and it needs you at this moment, get yourself yeah, online, look up Perian, look up at the website and support her. Simple, $5, man. And you get that cereal which is kicking off. You'll see how good it is when you listen to the kind of... We've got actually... Sil uh, Silverberg's intro, what he wrote in, I think it was 1970 as well. We've got that as well to kind of play as well. So you'll all, all hear that coming on this show. So, look after yourselves. Back to normal next week, honestly, I promise you. None of these emotional bloody roller coaster. Look after yourselves. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. 
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.